Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Uh, Yes, indeed. Welcome to Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland, and this is a Supply Circle podcast that asks the question of supply chain implementers, innovators, and influencers, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we are implementing the challenges of the three Ds. You know them, digitalization to keep up with our peers and our industry, decarbonisation to meet our legal requirements and targets by 2050, and in some states by 2045. And the third D is ongoing disruptions, which comes in many shapes, not only global pandemics, but also industry disruptions, product disruptions, logistical interruptions and challenges, global inflation, geopolitics, and many, many, many more. Each fortnight, we delve into all sections of the end-to-end supply chain. We look at the three Ds. We look at the issues from different angles. I get to chat with fascinating and interesting and knowledgeable people, and we have some fun along the way. Hey, listen, we've had some wonderful guests on the show this year, including in recent weeks a a small business owner and specialist supplier. Thank you, Sarah. A senior sustainability supply chain manager. Thanks, Margaret and an emerging supply chain manager in a, building or, in a buying organisation, thanks, Nicola. It's been great hearing firsthand their stories uh, of what they're implementing and innovating. It's been a while, though, since we heard from supply chain academics, over a year, I think. And it's always good to talk to academics on the emerging trends and challenges in building sustainable supply chains in Australia and what we're doing to try and face these challenges. It's good to talk to the thought leaders. It's the uni researchers and academics that have time to look at the big picture and try to clarify and identify it for us. And it's the professors and lecturers that are creating the supply chains and business leaders of the future. So today we're going to do something a little different. I'm really, really excited. I've invited two amazing guests to chat with today, both are from the Business School at University of Technology Sydney, UTS, and both are globally recognised experts in their field of sustainability and supply chain development. It's a great honour to have them with us today. Let me introduce them. They are world class. Firstly, Dr. Melissa Edwards is the Director of the Executive MBA Program and she's the Research Director for the Centre of Business and Sustainable Development at UTS. Her research and teaching focus is on stakeholder capitalism, hybrid organising, and the leadership challenge of transitioning to new business models like the circular economy, social enterprises, ESG reporting and investment, and regenerative businesses. Melissa has published many articles in top-tier academic journals, and she has presented her research at conferences worldwide. She is a rock star academic in this area. She is well-known for her work in sustainability science, complexity theory, organizational learning development, leadership, innovation, and strategic management. It is a delight to say hello, Melissa. Wow, rock star. I don't think I've ever called a rock star before, but thank you very much, Jim, for that wonderful um, introduction. And it's such a pleasure to be here today talking to you and everyone listening uh, in on this um, on this exciting topic. I think you've hit uh, the 3Ds there, uh, really touched on some of my uh, favourite things that I love talking about with professionals and also our students in classrooms. So I um, look forward to our chat today. Yeah, so this is going to be a great chat. 
Also with us is Dr. Renu Agarwal. She's the professor in management at the UTS's business school, and her expertise is in strategic operations and supply chain management. Specifically, she specifically has interest in supply chain management, service value networks, management practices, and dynamic capability building. Uh, a key focus of mine. And of course, lastly, she's involved in innovation, productivity, and policy making. Renu has been instrumental in leading and designing supply chain programs, which helped attain the UTS Strategic Supply Chain Management Program number one ranking in Australia. Uh, and she is currently the course director of the UTS Online Masters in Supply Chain Management and the listed programs. Dr. Renu has written for and published in multiple top-tier international journals, including publications for FT50 journals, research policy, and decision science. As you can hear, she is extremely well-respected for her expertise in supply chain management and capability building, particularly in the new world, a time when it's critical to boost the productivity and resilience in our uh, in an environment of increasing uncertainty. I probably should say she's also a rock star when it comes to supply chain academia. Hello, Renu. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, James. Once again, uh, same as Melissa, I'm really uh, honoured to hear this word, rock star, but I look forward <laughs> to having this chat with you. And, um, yeah, no one said that to me, but that's interesting. <laughs> that's really good. Um, oh. So let's let's see how we can uh, talk about these issues uh, the three Ds that you mentioned, as well as the supply chain, um, you know, from a supply chain angle and the emerging issues, especially for Australia. So you both work at uh, UTS. Do you work in that, that amazing building, you know, the, the collapse, I call it the collapsing building, the one that's got, that's a landmark in, in that area of Sydney? Yeah, I definitely do so work in the iconic building and it's actually on level six uh, and since 2014. Uh, so it's been a, you know, almost close to a decade that, uh, you know, we'll be in that building. What's the story with it? Was it built, designed by an Australian or does anyone know this, the story? Because I'd love it. Uh, they, well, it, it got sort of um, the project around building this Panguri uh, building, it's called, uh, was in 2011. And um, I, I remember the days when I would actually walk from building five down to uh, Piemont, um, uh, sorry, Ultima Road just to see what was happening because I would really sit and imagine that one day I'll be there teaching, learning, researching, uh, you know, in this masterpiece building. Um, it's actually designed by Frank Geary. I think he's an American Canadian, uh, uh -huh. as far as I know. And he's a leading architect, best known for buildings with fluid spaces in particular. So, uh, well, if anyone doesn't know the building, just look it up on UTS because it's a, a, it's a stunning building. Uh, you know, I've seen many great buildings. It's a world. fantastic testament to brickwork, right? And I think that's <laughs> one of the things when you when you're talking about innovation. One of the stories I loved um, when I was hearing about things that were happening with how this building would come to life was actually. Mm after the design phase and, you know, with local um, brick makers really having to uh, figure out new ways of arranging the bricks in the way that they're arranged on the building. If you just look at the outside, it sort of bends your mind. And I think probably for some of those people involved, it was really innovating and bending their mind too in terms of how they put that put those bricks um, through wires up and down the building structure. It's quite interesting. It's clever, isn't it? It's just a great building and I think, it's good to have um, people who are involved in innovation and forward thinking in that sort of building. It, it reinforces to you every time you come to work that that's what you need to do probably, be innovative and forward thinking. I wanted to ask you, what, what's uni like now? It's been 
20 years since I was back at, at uni. Uh, we'd heard a lot during COVID that it was very difficult to get students um, through their courses. What's it like? Uh, um, are they still, do they still meet in coffee shops and, and you know, swap paper written notes? <laughs> or is it all at home on noodles? Or uh, do they do, you know, tell me about it. Just what, how does your classes work? Um, I think uh, at the moment, uh, uh, if you're talking about, you know, at the very moment as we speak, I think we have a hybrid mode of um, teaching and learning that's going on where some classes are face-to-face and some classes are um, using the collaborative tools like Zoom and Canvas and so on. So I guess it's a mixed bag because it was during COVID that um, most of us were, um, you know, forced in some ways to uh, use those collaborative tools to do the teaching. And suddenly it was pondered on us in the way that, um, you know, Zoom and Team and, and Canvas had to be used to deliver online uh, subjects, both domestically and globally. So as far as your question about where students meet, yeah, we've got really big, large open spaces around the campus and students do love it. So there are, there's actually, I see that there is a current trend in the way you can split the cohort. There are ones who are used to studying from home, same as like we work from home, you know, WFH and SFH, if you want to call it. Whereas, uh, and, and they, although they are deprived of socializing and networking aspects and collaboration, whilst there is another cohort which is demanding uh, now, like because the life is coming back to normal post-COVID, uh, they are really demanding as though they would want more networking, more career path progression, and more of uh, industries, speakers, and interactions. Um, because I think engagement is sort of missing from their life. So they, they do want to visit the campus and be on campus. And I think that would be amazing if, um, if we do end up having that lifestyle that we had 40 years ago, but in a digital world, um, in, in, the way the, in, in the way information and, and learning happens in classrooms uh, or even face-to-face or online. So I guess it's a bit hard at the moment. That's the question because uh, in the workforce, of course, we're struggling with working from home combined with face-to-face collaboration. How do we get the maximum innovation, the maximum result from our people, but still having a, the opportunity to work from home, which many people like? And uh, it sounds to me like you're already doing that at the uni, so we can expect the next lot of graduates to come out expecting that just to be life, to be able to work from home and to also be able to collaborate online and, 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 and physically. Would you agree, Mel? Oh, look, I mean, we we started actually thinking about redesigning programs prior to the pandemic because of that very reason, right? So, you know, to one of your D's, disruptive innovation in terms of the technology space, I think we really saw that as an advantage, actually, because there are certain parts of learning that we can actually do really well in this kind of format. And actually, even better, we can create really cool interactive platforms where people can engage with learning at their own pace, in their own time, wherever they might be. Um, and, and, you know, even in the um, experience cohorts where we've got professional learners coming back maybe after eight or 10 years, they're often we're traveling during those times. So being able to engage with learning and, and stay engaged with the community virtually was really, really important part of program design. Um, so how do we create really cool spaces um, where we can do that? 
um, was part of that thinking. But then we also need those times when everyone comes together. And, you know, especially when you're bringing in new areas where you want to sort of really workshop and discuss new ideas, or perhaps we bring in someone from industry who really wants to share their kind of personal experiences, but maybe doesn't want that to be in a digitalized form somewhere floating around online. So universities are great for that reason too, to convene those spaces where people can come to talk together, talk about the issues and really kind of brainstorm and innovate new ways of thinking. Um, so I think we've got both of those in the way that we've designed programs and the pandemic probably just expediated um, the virtual part a little more than we anticipated. Um, but that was lots of, lots of fun to try to keep up with. Yeah, you probably have to do it just to keep up with the, with the uni world. Uh, on our last uh, episode, uh, Nicola was talking about how she had done a, a sustainability course with the University of Cambridge uh, and uh, on her group, which she was doing online, obviously, because she was in Australia, on her group was the purchasing manager of Harrods. Uh, like it's just, I think it was Harrods. I may have made that up. But anyway, a, a global, you know, a, a massive brand. Uh, and, and I think, you know, in Australia, we need to do the same thing. Let's talk about what they're learning. Uh, Mel, you're a, a, a specialist in sustainability. Mm-hmm. How do you, I would imagine that the, 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 the students in university, I won't call them kids, the students in university have a totally different approach and a different ethos about uh, sustainability than what the older generation does. I mean, in, in many parts of community we're still trying to decide whether what we need to do whereas i would imagine that your students are very focused on what we need to do and very clear on it how do you start the conversation with them what's the starting point yeah, so I mean, again, I'll probably still break it into two groups. Like, so we've got our undergrads and then we've got our postgrad and experienced learners. And you're right, with the undergrads, there's definitely a shift in the way that they're thinking where they're actually coming to us and asking us, where are we learning about climate change in our program? How can I be a person who's both skilled up in the profession? Uh, you know, I need a job and I really want to make sure that I've got those opportunities in my future, but I want to do work that's meaningful and I want to make a difference. And these are issues that are really um, concerning young people today. So they want to know how can I combine those technical professional skills that I'm sort of learning with um, solving some of these really big challenges, um, which I think is fantastic and really inspiring as an educator. And then we've got the professionals who are coming in, um, you know, maybe with a 12 plus years of experience. And I think they realize that this is the, the changed game. So, you know, especially in the business professions where we've got um, new metrics, processes, mechanisms and reporting requirements, the way that that's changing a whole bunch of occupations, um, they know that they need to come in and then lift their game. So it's about refreshing and upskilling and adding a new dimension to what it is that they already know in terms of their technical competency. And so here we're really putting it in the, the framework of kind of leadership and that mindset that you need to be able to deal with what is, as you might know, probably from your previous previous discussions on this show, a really dynamic field. You know, things are changing on a day-to-day basis. And every time I come out of a call with my professional colleagues who are out there in industry practicing in this field, I'm just amazed with the pace and scale of change. So how do we actually create leaders who can deal with that complexity and ambiguity, but at the same time make really important decisions that are going to help keep economic prosperity because we all need to have jobs. So it's challenging. I just <laughs> great answer. I just realised uh, as we were talking that uh, there was two episodes ago that we were talking to Nicola about sustainability. Last episode we were talking uh, to Tim about the uh, 
business operational efficiency and leadership and change uh, and how important leadership is in as we head towards sustainability. I want to bring in uh, Renan in a second about value, but uh, Mel, let me ask you, Paul Hudson, my, my colleague on another podcast, says that uh, he, he uses the analogy, if you're going to lose weight, it's better off to have two and a half years to, to lose six kilos or 12 kilos than only six months. If you do it in six months, it's going to hurt a lot. And he's saying that as we fail to act quickly, there's going to be more pain in trying to achieve our sustainability goal. It's going to be harder because we have less time. The time, you know, the 1.5 is, is a hard line. The timeline is pretty hard and we're going, community's going to have trouble with it. Uh, do you address that? Is that true? Uh, look, I, you know, there are many different models for a start, right, that have looked at the various different trajectories we need to take in order to reach um, these targets within this next decade and then by 2050. There's not one I have looked at which hasn't said that then the more rapid the transition within this coming decade, the more likely we are to be able to meet that future target. Oh. So. If we, if we think that way and we think, okay, so a decade or, you know, we're less than a decade now, so we're, we're down to about seven years, but, you know, most planning cycles are um, for, for that type and scale of change need, um, you know, maybe five years to ten years trajectory to change the whole um value chain, for example, is going to not happen in the next 12-month reporting cycle. So I, the way that we're, we're encouraging people to think is very much in terms of bringing the future forward. So if this is a 2050 target, we need to bring that future forward and think about what are the short-term, um, by short-term I mean by the end of this decade, <laughs> uh, things that we need to set in place in order to uh, enable those changes to start to happen. Yeah. Yeah, we've got uh, seven years until the end of the decade. Uh, mm -hmm. We're in the process of doing our four-year strategic plan. Uh, there's only two strategic plans to go until we hit that target. So we should be talking about it, and we are talking about it, but many companies should. Um, Renu, did you have a thought? Yeah, my thought is like UTS itself. You know, we've had a 2027 strategy, and we've really brought into um, execution, if you want to call it, or it's the first stage of lifelong learning. So realizing that, uh, you know, um, there is big demand, there's short, uh, shortage of talent and, and also the way the consumer wants or our learners want learning to be uh, provided to them. There is, um, you know, there's really a need for upskilling, but maybe as a, in the form, different form as opposed to the traditional face to face. But now it's more around, uh, you know, a humongous range of, um, what should I call micro credentials or short courses that are coming and being designed jointly in partnership with industry. Yeah. So UTS started this like seven, eight years ago. And what I'm saying is, uh, or maybe I can't remember the exact 2020, and it's a 2027 strategy. And we are already a fair way ahead. And yes, the pandemic actually uh, accelerated that process in terms of the acceptance of the technologies and so on by, by everyone, you know, be it our consumers or be it ourselves as suppliers of that service. And I think that that really um, uh, sort of promoted the way that lifelong learning could be used. And I think this is one of the areas that for future, uh, uh, you know, the way the education model is going to work in the future, this is a very uh, drastic step in that, uh, in that form, in the way how the future yeah. education is going to look like. So in terms of the planning, yes, you know, and, and new things might emerge, like the pandemic emerged in the way we had a strategy and it sort of, you know, make short-term plans change, uh, whereas the long-term plan or the goals were still the same and we got to work towards them. 
Let me, let's get technical for a second. Uh, one of the well, not for a second, for a while. Uh, one of the uh, issues that we're hearing a lot about is value loss risk assessment, or you might call it something else. But basically, it is by looking at our supply chain in the old way, where at risk we we know we're losing value. For example, if you use a single source form of energy, you, you use cars that are internal combustion engines. You're burning that. You're burning that fuel. It's an inefficient vehicle because it's got massive loss of energy. Uh, and so that's the supply chain value loss. You're better off to go some sort of smart way to, to put value in. Or if you're using something that creates waste and you're throwing the waste away, you're, it's, it's a value chain loss. Talk to me about that. How do you see value chains and how can we build that into sustainability? I might ask with Mel, start with Mel on that question. So value chains are an interesting way of thinking about because as soon as you start thinking through value chains, you think through your process with the end in mind. So every part of value creation actually relies on consumers. And if what we're doing today is not meeting the needs of those consumers, there's obviously going to be some lag effect there. <laughs> and the more robust your um, way of thinking is in place and the less responsive you are, then the, the bigger the gap is in your ability to be able to respond. So when we talk about sustainability, we know that consumer demands are changing. And as you've mentioned, the next generation um, coming through, this is um, more important to them as well. So that's a starting point. Consumers first, how does that then help us think about the value creation that we're giving towards those, those consumers? But when we think about it in terms of um, sustainability related to climate change and, and addressing these issues around climate change, shifting it into a value uh, lens makes us think about the types of activities that enable us to create a valuable service for those consumers in a climate change world. And when we think about it that way, then we need to think about investing in the technologies and the new, um, maybe new products, new activities, new services in order to be able to um, meet the challenge of the climate change world that we're operating in. So it, it, it changes from a risk and cost way of thinking to an investment way of thinking, um, which, you know, is not just the margin that I have in today's market, um, but the preservation of that margin in, you know, in a market in, in, in five years' time when um, the, the way that carbon is going to play into the valuation of things is going to have a material effect on my business. Can you put that into an example? Um, so let's, I mean, if we're even just talking about, uh, energy in the way that you just talked about, um, relying on certain forms of, uh, energy, then, uh, thinking through the way that consumers can start to understand, uh, where the energy source is of certain products. For example, if we're operating in a future world where those, um, product disclosures are starting to uh, demonstrate to consumers, which products and services have more or less, um, uh, carbon embodied in their value chains, then consumers Consumers will or may, based on our uh, you know predictions around them, their preferences shifting, start to demand the products where they're able to see uh, lower carbon across that value chain, carbon emissions across that value chain. So, in order to preempt that, uh, a business today should be thinking about uh, diversifying you know their energy sources. Um, all the way along that um, upstream and downstream to ensure that their product is comp is um, competitive in that future market uh, where consumers are looking for um, lower embodied carbon in any kind of product or service. Uh, so we picked up the idea that uh, 
time, there's a deadline on this. We need to start thinking about this. We need to start thinking of the supply chain as a value chain. How are you creating value? And keep in mind that the consumers may and almost certainly will change shortly and you'll have to adapt to that to that change. Is that your, what you're saying? Yeah, there'll be greater transparency and disclosure across the value chain and consumers will have a greater ability to determine where in different product and service offerings they can make a difference by <laughs> demanding products where there are lower emissions or perhaps even products and services that are being restorative. So they're putting more back in in terms of the um, inputs and outputs of their production models. Yeah, they, they, they consume a democracy. Uh, we see a lot of uh, councils around Australia being told by their their constituents um, that they have to start implementing, you know, green actions. You have to start putting in recycling. You have to start using, you know, proper vehicles, etc. We're seeing that all over all over the country, and we'll start seeing it in business. Renu, has your, what's your thoughts on these things? Well, it's absolutely true. It starts from our homes. I mean, we already have these garbage bins, if you think of it. I mean, there's a wave that's going on in saying, uh, you know, made in India, made in Australia. Um, people are moving away from, you know, manufacturing in China and things like that only because they're becoming conscious. Uh, so certainly um, the disclosure part that Mel just mentioned, very, very true as they're becoming more transparent. And every touch point across the supply chain, be it at the raw material level, be it at the work in progress level, or be it in, in the manufacturing or sitting in a warehouse or getting to the consumer, if that's the supply chain we think of, then every touch point does contribute to sustainability, either in the form of waste or recycling. Like, look, think of jeans. I mean, jeans as a product, you want it, but nowadays we've got recycling of jeans happening all the time. I mean, toner printers and, sorry, Toners for printers, they've been there for a while. Mobile phones, they've got metal. I mean, resources are so tight. Um, so our, our Apple phone has got some level of gold and silver and platinum in there. And that's where the recycling. So there is this concept of reverse uh, logistics, if you want to call it. And companies are actually promoting a lot of those, uh, which is the backward uh, you know, supply chain in that form. So in terms of the value creation, um, I guess value is being created at every touch point, both upstream and downstream. And it is in alignment with the consumer expectations because um, if the goals align with that, then obviously their products and services will lead them to profitability. There's an assumption. I, I, um, uh, I've seen some stats that suggest that the greatest amount of waste is created the closer you get to the consumer. Um, simply put, you know, the, the packaging for the consumer is much worse than, than raw material. Although we also know that there's a lot of waste on farm, you know, so, uh, not so much waste always in, in mining. But, but is that true? What, what do you think? Where's the, where's the biggest risk uh, of waste, of, of inefficiency for my business at the, the market end or at the supplier end? So I think, I mean, look, wait, wait, if we can go back to um, when we were talking before about sort of carbon, for example, mm. before we get into issues of waste. Um, uh, yeah, I mean value waste rather than actual physical waste, but but uh, it could be either sort of waste. Okay, good. Yeah, so, so when companies are looking at the moment, uh, some of the larger companies have already been um, working on their own reporting and disclosures around their own operations, right, in terms of their emissions and other factors. 
And many of these companies are actually finding that somewhere about 80% of their impact is outside of their direct um, inputs and I'll jump in there. I, I think it varies by industry because if you look at food processing supply chain, you know, mangoes growing in a, uh, you know, in a farm and they sit there, they're not actually shipped at the right time, um, you know, in terms of cold storage or wherever they've got to go, or even in the processing industry, there's a lot of waste purely because it has perished over there. So when you look at uh, the cold storage supply chain in particular, where flowers or meat or, you know, you probably see the perishability or the waste originating at the um, at the um, the uh, manufacturer or supply, you know supplier end, as opposed to, of course, it does happen in our fridges as well at the consumer end. But it is probably happening at at the uh, supplier end, and that's where we should be looking for more efficiencies and looking at innovative ways of recycling or uh, avoiding, um, you know, those perishable activities. Uh, getting cold storages uh, in in rural areas making sure that the, you know, because these are crops, they come when they want to come. It's not something we can control. Mm. And so therefore they have to be managed very appropriately such that we actually um, uh, mitigate the risks around waste uh, for at least those perishable items. Yeah. I, I guess what you're saying is that it's varies from industry to industry, but it's the, okay. the, the, where the value lost is, is where you should be looking in your business. And, and that's part of a business in a food processing industry. So because food food comes as raw, food comes as ripe, food comes in the form of being processed, you know, not that top quality mangoes, for example, as I just that example, you know, they might be not the best, but then they go into processing for tinned uh, food or canned food or pulp or juices or whatever. So there's a whole separate supply chain in, in, in you know, in some ways that originates from that original mango, if you just pick up as that as one product that's coming from nature as a natural resource. We see a lot of, um, we see a lot of companies being aware of uh, all sorts of things, such as things um, um, Melissa was talking about, about where you're buying your goods from, making sure you're not involved in modern day slavery, trying to cut down your carbon miles, um, reshoring wherever possible. What do you think the future will look like? What are the students sort of trying to create? Are they? Can you paint a picture of what we're heading towards? It's interesting to think about where we're going. Uh, a lot of people have spent a lot of time. There's been a lot of things talking about what, what the smart cities of the future are going to be like, what the supply chains are going to be like. From what you're, from the work you're doing with your with your students and with your research, where do you think we're going? What's it going to look like in 2030, 20? 2040, 2045, 2050, what will our community be like? It's, you said it's important for us to know the market's going to change. Tell us about what the change is like. I think there will be big changes happening from a, in the way of the consumer because the biggest thing is it's going to be consumer-centric. So I think that's the biggest change. And as consumers' demands, their needs, their requirements are changing, businesses will have to adapt accordingly. That's rule number one. And I think the customer experience, that's becoming very important. Mm-hmm. And, and they are looking for convenience, they're looking for flexibility, and they're looking for choice. And when, when the consumer is looking for those you know, aspects in their products or services, um, and including business models, I'd say if you look at Uber or uh, Airtask or any of the business models that are coming, which are basically looking at a sharing economy from that perspective as well, it is part of sustainability to some extent where infrastructure which is sitting idle, is being used for some other purpose in, in, in a different shape or form. 
So what I'm saying is that there will be always be new forms of business models, new products, of course, coming up, new organizational models emerging over time. So when it comes to 20 years, I think with the technology disruptions across the supply chain, you know, there'll be new technologies uh, that, that are coming now. Our supply chain students would need um, a concatenation of not only the knowledge around supply chain, but also the knowledge around the technologies and their application in the supply chain context. So let's say for supply chain planning, if someone's doing a supply chain planning, then we probably need, they could do use digital twins, for example, you know, to actually simulate what a scenario might look like and, and actually um, evaluate. And, and that particular scenario would help them in their decision-making as to how they should deal with. So I think the, the way the technologies are exponentially rising, their application and suitability and relevance in supply chain is, is tremendously uh, replacing uh, things. So for example, um, if I talk about uh, manufacturing or you know all the robotics, all the automated uh, manufacturing that is happening, sensors, RFID, industry um, 4.0, which is coming in manufacturing, IoT 4.0, which is all the Internet of Things, uh, where you get all the different types of RFID sensors, you know, for uh, for use. The application of those within the touch points is what is going to get them value. And the value is going to arise from the data that they capture. So this is probably an era where we are capturing the data. Till now, supply chains were quite fragmented. Uh, they're not integrated end-to-end and transparency of data didn't exist. So apart from us expecting them to be agile, responsive, adaptable, sustainable, you know, there's a whole set of features that we expect our future supply chains to be. But I think what the magic that's going to happen is with the data analytics, using the operations research models that have been done for years where you could actually simulate in real time and hence be able to construct supply chains that are more real-time. So, for example, the Australian business statistics at a macro level have actually um, got this big program going or research going where they're looking at um, doing uh, simulation and studies, looking at redesigning Australia's entire um, supply chain network in the way they can manage routing if a disruption occurs. So it's something going to be very innovative in that space once that happens. So I think in, in... 20 years down the track or 10 years down the track, we'll probably have very much automated real-time supply chains with ability and capability that allows us to reconfigure in short uh, you know, spans. And, and not only that, I think space is coming as a very new, interesting area where data is being captured for earthquakes. Um, you know, in terms of live data that an earthquake is about to occur in New Zealand or somewhere else, and the ripples are apparently being captured much earlier in the space to take proactive steps. So I think space data and the way that concatenation is happening along with the data that we're going to capture from on the earth itself is going to get some amazing supply chain um, trends that will emerge in all aspects, be it manufacturing, be it logistics, be it service delivery, be it warehousing. Um, you know, the, even the last mile delivery in terms of the use of drones, for example, or delivering goods to our home. So autonomous vehicles, all of those things. So I think that's where uh, the, the whole the whole place is going to change. Yeah. Um, I think there will be 
different scenarios that may emerge. Someone might not favor that total end-to-end automation, but we don't know. We've got to live to mm-hmm. it and see it. I can what I can say is 40 years ago when I graduated, I don't see big changes in the way the uni life was, say 20 years ago here in Australia, where I studied 40 years ago. But over time, as technology has emerged and as we've gone into online model, and that's a supply chain in itself, education yeah. industry is, is a supply chain. Students are demanding the very different things. Okay. So, uh, I mean, the data is going to change our life. Data and, and digital is going to change our life. Let's talk about that in a second. Did you have any thoughts on what the sustainability piece is going to look like, Merlin, in, in, a, in 10 or 15 years or even less? Well, let's let's take the assumption that data is going to change our lives here. Then I would say that data is going to change our lives in terms of the way that we think about the valuation of things that we might seem as invisible right now. So carbon, you know, natural materials in the way that we value them as in terms of inputs and outputs across a whole value stream is going to be a really important Thing, if we listen to technology and, and we allow technology to reveal that to us in a way that we can rethink our systems, then in 2050, um, the world that we're going to be living in is uh, the focus is going to be around a circular world or a regenerative um, system. And I think that's a very different way of thinking about how we organize um, all of our sets of activities. So, that would mean that we would be living in, in kind of living living cities where things are coming more on demand to people um, only as they need it. Waste is designed out of the system and we have these restorative and regenerative flows based on smart systems if we're listening to them. <laughs> that means uh, we, we are optimising what's happening um, in terms of providing all the goods and services that a person might need in, in their life. In their life. Um, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a vision of what 2050 could live, look like but it's based on this assumption yeah. that we that we listen and that we um we think differently about what it is that we're doing in our needs instead of our current very linear way of thinking about we keep on producing the same things that we're producing as fast as we can but that's the beautiful thing isn't it we we, we see a, a future where we are much more aware of what's going on rather than this blindness that we've had for many years of of just waste and throwing things away and uh, living a, a, a sort of unsustainable life whereas the data will be able to prove to us that we're that, that's not sustainable we need to live a different way and the kids will um, you know the, the, the students the kids at school now the students coming through are seeing that I think uh, you know in my conversations with them they're starting to say come on take this serious guys take this really seriously and we and the, we've got the data to help us let's take a break when we come back I want to talk more about digital uh, and and what that looks like so uh, this is a good conversation thank you If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Welcome back. We're talking to uh, Melissa and Renu from the University of Technology in Sydney, the rock stars of uh, supply chain and sustainability. When I, in my management career in supply chain, we 
we used Excel basically. I know I'm showing my age, although many companies are still using Excel. And a bit like the sales guys would come in and say, or the salespeople would come in and say, here's what we expect to sell over the next 12 months. And we would, we would, uh, create a, you know, sales and operational plan or a design plan. And they'd say, we're going to sell this many in, in November. So we would use the highly technical way of dividing that into four because it's four weeks. Uh, the future is not like that, is it? Uh, the digital and the data and the people who understand the digital natives are, that are coming out of universities, they kind of see a whole new world, as you were saying before the break, Renan. What are we going to be able to do with all this, this data? Uh, are, we, uh, are we going to really understand life much better? I think it will definitely give us the ability to, if it all falls in place, which means I see four key elements. One is the supply chain itself in its traditional form. Secondly is putting the tools or the technologies that can actually help us capture the data around those touch points. But once the data is captured, it gives us immense capability to actually analyze it. And I think that's where two particular aspects, traditional operations research modeling and simulation and modeling tools, uh, optimization tools come into play. And the third and the new thing that has emerged is the data analytics with AI and other, you know, uh, predictive analysis. And uh, you've got your reactive analysis. There's different analysis that you can actually do with the data that you collect. So the concatenation of those, along with the synergistic value creation that will actually happen as an outcome of that would help us or will will arm us with capability that will help us uh, do problem solving in real time. And that is what is going to be very important for, um, you know, for the future, because if, you know, in terms of efficiency, in terms of effectiveness, in terms of productivity, in terms of sustainability, in terms of your 3Ds as disruptions come in, uh, you know, and, and also be a decarbonization, all of that is very much, uh, you know, the, the pinchpin of the, the linchpin of success in the future, because once we capture the data, then we can do a lot of uh, extraction in terms of value creation out of those and then sort of recycling it back into, into the economy or into the ecosystem. I think what Renu has said is so critically important, especially from that technical capability side. I'd like to approach a question slightly differently, as I may, if I may, just to thought experiment Please here. Please do. Let's do So... <laughs> I'd like to say that actually this is going to come into play if then another capability is freed up and that is the human imagination, right? So if we're imagining that technology is playing a big role here, presumably people have more time to really think about what it is that we're trying to do in terms of orienting these production and consumption systems to meet the needs of our human populations to ensure we have safe livelihoods, to make sure everybody's health and well-being is looked after. And I think that's still a human capability that that means we need to think together more. So it needs to involve leaders from across value chains, for example, across industries, um, really putting together some kind of bigger way of thinking about what it is that is the direction of the system and where we're heading. Very true. There's a guy called Don Norman who's the former head of design for Apple and one of the people who's accredited with the concept of human-centered design, uh, a favorite of both of you. Um, and he says that we should now be focusing on humankind-centered, uh, humankind-centered design. Designs that solve issues as well as provide solutions to daily life. 
He says this includes humankind solutions connected to the manufacturing process and the supply chain process, circular economy for a start. He says that we've got to be creating more than art in our designs of products, but we need to be solving existential threats, which I think is what you're saying. We need to use our imagination not just to give us what we want, but what we need. Absolutely. Another word I've um, heard thrown around in this same vein is called life-centered design. Yeah. So when we get to that point of thinking through a service, it's not just only about the human um, needs, yeah, yeah, yeah. the life um, that everyone needs to be able to continue to consume on this planet. So, yeah, definitely. And I think um, this is a really exciting area because once we start to to think this way, it can help us actually sit back from those tools that we're so familiar with and really start to think differently. And I don't. I think until we actually we sit back and we start to think differently, we're just going to keep going in the same, same loop, if you like, of optimizing what is a really great system but potentially heading in a direction that's not actually fulfilling our needs what we're going to need then is uh entrepreneurs people that can see opportunities big opportunities and make make business design that that solve those those big issues are your students entrepreneurs that we hear that the new generation is very good at 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 this Entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, yeah. change makers, yeah, yeah, yeah. restless minds, people who want to tinker. Um, yeah, look, I think this is a, a really strong um, theme, and particularly at you know the campus where we're lucky to be part of at UTS is a, a very big focus on that entrepreneurial way of thinking. Um, and it, I, th- I think it's not unfamiliar to many people who have been operating in industry and business for a long time, but maybe we put it aside a little bit once we start um, working in a room routine way uh, to optimize something that we've been very passionate about and very skilled up in doing for some time. Um, So we try to encourage that across the board in terms of all our different programs and the way that we design them. Um, Renew, I I think, you know, that's also a very strong theme in terms of the uh, Masters of Supply Chain Management. Mm. It's not only just focused on those technical capabilities. No, very true. We, in our courses, we definitely, um, we try to bring all the angles because what is important is to make our students workforce ready. So in terms of, and as time is changing and as the needs of the industry and the market are changing and and knowing that supply chain is not like as a profession can be applied in any industry. I mean, be it education, be it health, be it travel and tourism, be it defense, be it, you know, you name it. So the, the, the case studies or the extent of that, um, the knowledge that we try to give in our program is definitely to make sure that students um, develop the capabilities and apply to them. And in my online courses that I'm currently developing for the, uh, you know, the Masters in Supply Chain online program, we are definitely bringing new ways in the way content can be incorporated, you know, um, within the course content and certainly um, even helping students because they're they are running in very short six weeks period, um, mm. you know, each subject, mm. I, I say. So it's pretty hard when the learners have to think of, um, uh, what should I say, you know, balance their work life and, and family life as well as, uh, as well as, you know, meet the commitments of the course that they're trying to do because they want to upskill or tra- up, uh, build their talent. Um, we are trying to help them in, in ways that they don't get bogged down with actually uh, understanding what the assessment requirements are. So giving them enough ammunition 
so that they can actually do the real creative work in developing that assessment and solving that problem, yeah. which could yeah. be a wicked problem and which which could be a wicked problem in, in the society and, and it really needs an innovative, creative solution. Yeah. So we, I just ran the supply chain excellence for the first time and I found um, in our Microsoft um, UTS combined graduate certificate degree on business consulting and technology implementation. The, and yesterday was actually the last day of that class, like a facilitation class. And I just joined that session. And it was interesting to see how all these consultants from top companies who are doing this course, uh, because they want to see how Microsoft 365 uh, can be deployed. And the application they're doing in the supply chain context is honestly amazing. They are bringing to flow very creative solutions with the way the problems can be solved. And I think we were just going back with this lifelong life, um, life design. I think that's what Melissa said earlier, uh, which is a term I heard for the first time. But I do know about lifelong learning. I think I mentioned that. But that's really where we're looking at the social impact and, and the, you know, the, the environmental and, and the ESG, taking care of all the ESG aspects as well. well so in terms of things like life-centered design, though, for a typical person who might be in some kind of um, procurement position within a larger company, for example, you know, this is about putting the environment into the picture when you're thinking about purchasing decisions, mm. very simply. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the starting point, right? So how does that then change about the decision? How does that then change the decision you make? Um, it's about thinking through how do we, how do I make sure if I'm going to um, make some a certain procurement decision that the thing that I need in order to create the product and service is not actually taking more out of the environment than it's putting back in. How can we make sure that it's putting more back in? How can we think about the decision I'm making in terms of purchasing at, it, at its end of life, going back into the natural system, going back into what we call the nutrient cycle and adding nutrients to that cycle so that future generations are benefiting from the that I'm delivering. It's a different way of thinking about what it means to do the technical professional job that you've been doing, which is that entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial mindset. But at the very heart of it, you have to put a different set of values from a sustainability perspective. <laughs> no, no, but I think sustainability has become a core for sustainable supply chain. And so it's, it's talking about sustainability in supply chain. And I'll take an example. Mel and I have done a project, which Mel led, um, on receipts. And to be honest, since when I've done that project, I don't take receipts on shops because I know how it contributes to waste, both in the form of paper as well as the carbon, you know, the printing of it, until and unless I desperately need a receipt, they, they ask me on the counter, do you need a receipt? I say no. So I think that awareness, that, um, that uh, uplifting of knowledge and understanding and inculcating those values within us individually is going to definitely have a major impact on um, this, you know, uh, sustainable aspects of su future supply chains. Yeah, I think what you're also what you're both saying is fantastic. It's this high, whole idea about understanding value loss in your supply chain. If you look at it from an old school, where we just keep wasting stuff along the way, and that's and and that seems like the best way to run the business. Now there's these new ideas, and, and not even not even sort of necessarily fundamentally new we're just becoming aware of the fact that now we can manage the business differently using digital in order to capture that value we're losing it's been a great conversation two more things before we go um gartner which is a, a global consulting group 
uh, recently did a survey on the attitudes and the issues that are important to U.S. university students. And the survey found that students consider the issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, career experiences, autonomy, and value of who I am as being the most important to them. They said they wanted to work for brands that do good, that make an impact on the world. And they're especially looking for brands that make a positive social impact. So, I mean, we understand all that. The, the, the students of today are saying they, they want to be valued for who they are and they want to do good for the world. But the next bit was interesting. They said that one thing they just hate hearing, uh, particularly in the workplace, is just do it because that's the way we've always done it. That's the way we do things around here. They said in the summary of the survey, the world is changing too fast to be locked into old ways. So listen to us. Let's work in a flat structure and entrepreneurial approach to business. Do you get that feel? Is that is that what you hear from your students? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it's it's it's. I mean, I remember taking my first class at UTS, and I took an example of a shirt I'm wearing and a broken button. I mean, the tendency because of too much affluency, today's kids, or I mean, I'll say ten years ago, kids would throw this shirt away in the bin just because it's got a broken button. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, and a, and a torn socks. But I remember growing as a child, my mother would stitch it and we would use it We until it's used in another shape, maybe even as a kitchen towel. But now with commercialization, all those values have disappeared over time. And we are, we've just got too much affluency. And I think that probably also has an impact on the last 10, 15 years of, you know, uh, the generation that has, that has uh-huh. come up in those years. But I think there is increasingly People are understanding the value of waste as we move forward. Those students from 15 years ago are listening to this course and they're now the senior executives in, in organisations. Scary. <laughs> well, these, and this is the thing, right? So the, the, I think the point about the system of education and then the world that people on this call might be coming in from who may not be in the education sector is that we're often in a room with people who see themselves as wanting to be the change makers in that world that they're going back into. And maybe yeah. they're professionals who are coming, they're dipping into the education sector because they feel like something's missing and they want to go back and be those people who are creating change. Hmm. But there needs to be a big change. We need to carry that through back into the workforces, right? So yeah. it's not enough to say that it ends at the classroom. And then we say, okay, well, look, this was a wonderful theoretical idea, but in practice, <laughs> these ideas don't carry. We, we see those ideas carry in practice when people say, these are the ideas we want to carry in practice. Hmm. And and we have to think together and we have to put our heads together and we have to try to work together to reinvent the system that we're actually working in. Um, so, and I think that's the piece that often we see there's a disconnect um, in. So I guess from us in the education sector, our interest and call to people in industry is help us work together. How can yeah. we also work together to make sure that we're, we're moving the wheels in the same direction at the same time? Yeah, it's a great place to finish is exactly uh, my thinking and where we've been trying to discuss right from the start, this idea that uh, it's a new style of thinking required if we're going to achieve the challenges that that are ahead of us. They are achievable. Uh, People in university are learning it. And maybe just maybe we need to listen to the kids coming out of university from your classes and the ones that are doing your master's class and say, help us, help us redesign. One last question. Is it possible in the new in the new world for the small businesses to be able to keep up with all these changes? 
I think small business innovation is where it can happen, right? Agile, working together, uh, closer to customers, um, not necessarily locked into such huge um, structures that they can't pivot, change, transform. And young people as well are inspired by this thinking, right, because it's the, the sort of startup mentality that we can create these kind of maybe they're intermediary type businesses that are helping to try to create changes and shifts in the system. I think it is fundamentally um, more challenging when huge resources are required, but there's, there's a disconnect here. It's not always huge capital investments that's required for some of these changes. And that's what, what really inspires me is seeing this whole infrastructure of sort of like, you know, the, the climate salad world with all these climate tech entrepreneurs who are, you know, making little changes in the system here, there, and that are leading to that bigger change. So yeah, look, look, I think it's challenging for everyone, I guess is my way of answering your question. Um, if you're a small business, don't think that you're being left out because everyone's finding the challenge, finding it challenging, and we're all in the same, yeah. all in the same uh, scenario. There's a great song from the '60s, I think, that said, uh, "What we need is a great big melting pot." Imagine putting the world in all it's got. Maybe that's what we're doing. Maybe the new world will be much more. Uh, all of us in this together. Final comment, Renu, before we go. Um, I think the in the in the small medium space, I think. The digital world is probably, um, you know, they'll probably jump on directly on the bandwagon in the way of uh, doing a fully digital business. And that's what these small businesses would generally do, as Mel said. So as opposed to a major digital transformation that business processes apply in large corporates, I think the small medium uh, firms will probably have that advantage uh, if they have the right mindset and they have the right problem to solve and the business idea that they're wanting. So it's the mean type people, I would say, that probably would would progress in that in that direction. And, 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 you know, there'll be a mixed bag, of course, but certainly they will still need to supply their products and services and avail the supply chain, uh, you know, logistic aspects of warehousing and delivery, depending on their products and services. And I think that's where these new new business models are emerging as well because, you know, supply chain as a service, product as a service, the PaaS, the TAS, we just name it, the SaaS software as a service. (laughs) So there's just so many models. Is it actually more than half a dozen, more than a dozen models that have emerged? And the more recent ones are supply chain as a service, as I mentioned, even infrastructure as a service. There's product as a service. We've been service as a, uh, you know, uh, there's various models that, Probably these new emerging small medium enterprises could take advantage of, and um, you know because if they want to scale up their business model, then they would be able to avail it through operating costs rather than um, direct capital investment in the first place. What a great place to finish. Uh, we are hearing clearly from both of you that uh, we need to be conscious of the time frames involved. It's coming quickly, and we need to establish value look at what that value chain and see it from a different angle and be positive about it because it's going to be good. Uh, it's going to be challenging, but it's possible for big businesses, small businesses and supply managers everywhere to uh, to take these issues head on. I hope I've summarized you correctly. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you, James, for having us on. Really appreciate this conversation. It's been a wonderful chat. I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you all the best as you face face these interesting challenges. 
Well, that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for your feedback. We've had a lot of feedback recently. It was a great pleasure to hear from you. Uh, as I always say, I love the compliments, but I'll take the brickbats. If you have any feedback on today's interview or ideas for the show or just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at james.scotland, one T, james.scotland at argroup.com.au or head over to my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. 